I know we have a couple of guys in here named Bob, so this is not uh, reflective of any Bob in the auditorium today, although it may come close. To which Bob I'm referencing, I'm not going to say which one, but uh, you know who you are. It's entitled Exhausted Bob. Exhausted Bob. It's a little poem. Let me just read it to you. It says, Today my heart beat 103,369 times. My blood traveled 168 million miles. I breathed 23,000 times. I inhaled 438 cubic feet of air. I ate three pounds of food, maybe a few more pounds more, and I drank 2.9 pounds of liquid. I perspired 1.43 pints. I gave off 85.3 degrees of heat. I generated 450 tons of energy. I spoke 4,800 words. That's about 800 more than most men speak. I moved 750 major muscles. My nails grew 0.000564 inches. My hair grew 0.01714 inches. I exercised 7 million brain cells. No wonder I'm tired. Have you ever felt like that? How many of you can relate to Bob? Just living sometimes exhausts our energy, doesn't it? I don't know of anybody here today who would probably be looking for more things to put on your agenda, to be put on more things on your calendar, to, to put more things on your to-do list. And I know there's a, some, of, some of us here, you know, we kind of avoid work, and, 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 and some of us are a little bit more relaxed or a little bit less driven than others, but about 98 percent of us would honestly have to say, I don't need anything else on my to-do list. The time that I have is depleted. I am exhausted. I am tired. My calendar is full. My agenda is overcrowded. I have no time left. And so time, being what it is, often have a tendency then to sort of be spent not knowing where it went. And you do a whole lot of things, not recognizing, realizing where that time went. And if you don't keep a list, you may, kind of like money, you may kind of reflect back upon where you've spent your time and forget where you've spent that time and wonder where I spent my time. Was it of value? Was it significant? Was it worth, was it worth my effort? And I think as we reevaluate our schedule and our time and how we spend that time, it's important for us to understand that we must have and we must reflect a positive value system. And if we were to put and assess a value on how we spend our time and the things that occupy our time, most of us would be honest, about 10 to 20% of where we spend our time in doing the things that we do more than likely have low priority and could be not done at all, like vacuuming the carpet or doing the dishes, <laughs> just not do them at all and therefore alleviate more time in our schedule, more time on our calendars to do the things that are really important. And so we, we could assess the value on those things and put those at the very bottom of the list and just simply not do them at all and find some additional time. The problem is when we assess value on things and we deplete these things from our lives to, to make more time and more room for other things on our, on our calendar, our agenda, and our to-do list, isn't it interesting that how quickly other things seem to pop up and fill those voids as soon as we take them out of our lives? And Jesus, when he is addressing his disciples in his final words, understands the investment and the preoccupation of time. And Jesus, in these last words, as he addresses to the church, is setting not only a value system, but he is setting a priority for his disciples in how they are to invest the time that they have in this life on this planet while they're here to invest it wisely. For he knows that with the demands of everyday life, just trying to live even in his day and time, time is valuable. And if we're not careful, we will invest in the things that are, are not priority. We'll invest and use our time unwisely, so much so that we won't do the things that are primarily the most promising and the greatest things to do in the use of our time. And so if I were to come up here this morning and just simply say, you need to put this on your agenda, you need to put this on your calendar, it needs to take the priority in your life, you would say, how do I find room? What do I drop? 
What do I stop? How do I adjust my life to make this my life mission, to make this my priority? And yet, Jesus, in his final address to the disciples, says exactly that. This must be the disciples' priority. What is the disciples' priority? It is, number one, to become a disciple, and number two, to spend your life building disciples. Two priorities in the life of the disciple, to become a disciple and to spend your life becoming one and building others into discipleship. We must ask ourselves as we begin this series on discipleship, not only to this morning, but tonight over here in the, uh, what do we call that now? Epicenter. How many of you remember it was the rainforest? Then it was the worship center. Well, it was the worship center first, then it became the rainforest, then it became a worship service. Now it's the epicenter. And I asked Matt when he, when he, what is the epicenter? I don't know. Do you? Anyway, it's right over here tonight at 5.30. Join us in the epicenter tonight where the youth normally meet. We're going to come together at 5.30 and we'll have some worship. And we're going to begin an eight-week study on how disciples follow in the footsteps of Christ because that's exactly what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who follows the teachings, who follows the lead of Jesus. Most of us in here have played follow the leader before when we were children and some of us as parents and grandchildren still play that from time to time with our children and our grandchildren. Jesus is the leader, and we must then follow him as our leader. That simply stated is what a disciple is. It is someone who follows Jesus. He is the leader. He is the Lord. He calls the shots. He fills your calendar. He dictates your agenda. And it is he who invades your life, sets the value structure of what is valuable and what is not. And in that process, a disciple then values what he says is valuable and then sets out on a course to accomplish what he understands is following in the footsteps or the leadership of Jesus. That, in essence, is a disciple. And so Christ is calling each of us as his disciples on this journey, on this path of discipleship. And it's simply stated is following in the footsteps of Jesus, becoming a disciple, answering the call to become a disciple, and then answering a call to invest our lives in building disciples in others in our life and in our faith community. That's the call that Christ issues to us. So as we take a look at the text that Matt read just a little while ago, how do we follow the lead of Jesus? If we are disciples, how do we follow Christ's lead? Number one, we must answer the call. You must answer the call. When I was a child and we were outside in Brazil and we were playing out in the streets and we many times played soccer and in the Colegio Bachisa just across the street down the way, and it was far enough to where you could barely hear mom's voice. I, my parents had this, has this, has this thing, and they're going to listen to the tape you know, at some point. And uh, my mother, and I think I've told you this before, she would scream like no one else's business, a very high-pitched voice. I'm not going to say, Charlie! Just like that. Step out on the front porch and just yell my name expecting me to hear it. I must admit there are occasions when I heard her voice, I did not answer the call. I continued doing what I was doing. It is important that we, when we hear Jesus speaking, when we hear him calling, we answer his call to discipleship, not to ignore it. And the call that he issues is a call to discipleship. Jesus doesn't call anybody to invite Jesus into their hearts. He doesn't call anybody to say a simple prayer. He calls people to discipleship, to following him as their leader and their Lord. And I think we have oversimplified this whole concept of what it means to become a Christ follower by simply praying a simple prayer, hearing the call, praying a prayer, going out the doors after we are presented and then baptized, never then to answer the call of discipleship. It is an oxymoron for you to answer the call for salvation and not discipleship. You cannot answer the call to be saved and not become a follower of Christ. 
It is an answer to the call that he extends to us to follow his lead, to make him the leader and the Lord of our lives, not just our Savior. And so we see in the text this important thing as we talk about what many of us have set for years in the church, we call the Great Commission. But you know, these two verses, just prior to the Great Commission, helps us understand that before we join Christ in the Great Commission, we must ourselves answer the call to be disciples ourselves. Because you cannot disciple anyone unless you are a disciple. And so it's important for us to understand, and I think clearly laid out in Scripture, he says that we must follow his lead, and in following his lead, we answer the call. Notice the text. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mount to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, answering the call to genuine discipleship, as we see in verse 16, helps us understand that authenticity always reflects, it reflects obedience. There's, a, there's an aspect of discipleship in which we respond to the call, and when we respond to the call, that call is reflecting the authenticity of the fact that not only have we made him our Savior, but we have made him our Lord. How do we know that we've made him our Lord? We simply do what he has asked us to do. That's what a disciple is. We do what he asks us to do. And we see that clearly laid out for us in verse 16. He said, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now is an important context in this verse that helps us understand what preceded. Jesus had risen from the dead. He had appeared to both Mary's. And he had told both Marys to go back to the hiding place where the disciples were hiding out and tell them to meet him in Galilee. Later on, we learn in the Gospel of John, I believe, where Jesus tells his disciples to go to Galilee after they have seen him and after he reappears in and presents himself to Thomas. And then they take that one week long journey from Jerusalem to Galilee where they have been told to meet Jesus. The 11 disciples leave their hiding place and they leave to go to meet Christ where he had told them to meet him. Meet me in Galilee. 11 disciples. What happened? To the 12. There were 12 originally, weren't they? But we see earlier on in the passages of the New Testament, in the gospel accounts, that Judas dies. He hangs himself as a traitor. And so now there are 11. And the 11 disciples, and I believe the two Marys, make their way to Galilee, as Jesus had said, that he wanted to meet them there. To meet them in the mountain. What mountain, you might ask? Uh, we don't know what mountain in Galilee I can imagine the reason why they didn't indicate what mountain here is because I think God would be afraid that we would create a shrine there and, and build some sort of church. If you've ever been to the promised land, there's, there's some sort of church, there's some sort of something that, that, that is there to take tourist money. And Jesus stood it in this very limestone, and so, that it, I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. And so there's, this mountain is unnamed, but to a mountain in in Galilee, which, notice, Jesus had directed them. He directed the eleven and the two Marys, I believe, to meet him in Galilee. And they set off that week-long journey to meet him there. Why would they do that? I mean, when you think about it, they are afraid, literally, for their lives. They're their, their Messiah, their Savior has been arrested. He has been falsely accused. He has been tried. He has been convicted. He has been found guilty. He is then led to carry his own cross to the altar called Calvary where they nailed his body there, suspended him in the air, and he breathed his last breath, and he died. They saw, and they witnessed, and they heard that his body had been removed and taken to a borrowed tomb, and that tomb had been, had been sealed with a, a large stone in front of it, and soldiers had been placed there, and they were in this hiding place, in this upper room, literally in fear of their lives. They had heard the story, the testimony of the two Marys coming back and telling them, Jesus is alive, we're to meet him in Galilee. He appears to them in in the upper room, he appears a second time to present himself to Doubting Thomas, and he tells them, meet me in Galilee, and it is a huge risk on their part to put themselves and to expose themselves into danger, to go out into the streets where they believe they would soon, like Jesus, be arrested, tried, convicted, and condemned, and they would die. And yet Jesus had said, meet me in Galilee. 
And they, I think, literally, they believed that if they were caught, they would die. But Jesus had instructed them, had directed them to go to Galilee. And they, because of their authenticity in following the commands, the, the, the leadership, the words, the directions of Jesus, they followed him even at the risk of their own lives. That's authentic discipleship, willing to go where Jesus leads. They answered the call. Not only did they reflect authenticity, but they recognized his supremacy. If you take a look at the text, what happens next in verse 17, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. When they saw him, they worshiped him. And is a huge word there, and having obeyed Christ. He said, I will meet you in Galilee. And if they were to see Jesus again, they were to meet him in Galilee, not in Jerusalem. And they would have to go to Galilee and expose themselves to danger in order to meet Jesus. And they were willing to do that. And they went. And they made the journey. And having done what Christ had asked, when they arrived, they saw him there. They, not just the 11, but the Apostle Paul helps us understand the 500. Now, if you know anything about the account of what happens during the resurrection, you know that as soon as they got to Galilee, they waited for a while, and a few of them got tired of waiting. And what did they do? They go fishing. And while they're out there catching absolutely nothing, Jesus appears and, hey, guys, cast your net on the other side, and they have the catch of their lifetime. And it's Peter who realizes and recognizes Christ. Off he goes. And when they finally get to shore and all of the fish are there, they find waiting for them a beautiful breakfast prepared by Christ. I don't know about you, but breakfast is my favorite meal when someone else prepares it. I like being waited on for breakfast. I just do. Somebody to pour my cup of coffee and all of that. Just so you know, I am the one who most of the time prepares breakfast Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday at our house because Patty has a what she calls the J-O-B. That's the job. She's a teacher. And so Sometimes, most of the time, it's my job to do breakfast, so I wait on her, so I'm not just one who wants to be waited on, I'm not spoiled all the time, but I do like to go to restaurants, and if you've ever had a meal with me, you know that breakfast is my favorite meal to eat out, right guys? It's just awesome, and I'll, I'll get up at 5 o'clock and go have breakfast with you if you want to, just sit there and somebody to bring me breakfast, but anyway, they, they go to shore and they eat this beautiful breakfast, and we're not exactly sure when Jesus told them to go to this mountain, but I'm sure at some point he does. And they make their way there. And while they're there in Galilee, the interesting thing is that more than likely the word gets out that the 11 disciples are there and that Jesus is going to appear soon. And the Apostle Paul, as I mentioned earlier, is the one who then tells us that nearly 500 plus people show up with the 11 disciples plus the two Marys to see Christ personally. That's 500 plus people are there on the mount waiting for Jesus. We don't know how long they waited, but I believe they waited some time. Because you see, he's not on our time schedule. He doesn't follow our agenda. And there sometimes is a purpose if you're waiting upon God to invade your life and to show up. There's a reason why there's a waiting period. There's spiritual growth in waiting on Christ to show up in your circumstance. And they're waiting on that mountain for Christ to appear. They've learned their lesson. Let's don't go fishing again. Let's stay here and wait for Jesus. And finally he appears and it says they saw him. They witnessed him. They saw him with their eyes. 500 plus people see him. The physical Jesus raised from the dead in person on the mount where he had told them to wait that he would appear. 500 plus people. Why so many? Because you see, if it was just the 11 plus the two Marys, if they said they saw Jesus raised from the dead, what could Pilate and the religious elite say? <laughs> uh, you need more witnesses than that. Well, here's 500 plus witnesses now. It's hard to refute this in a court of law, and yet they try, but they fail. And so they saw him. Who did they see? They saw Jesus, his resurrected body. They saw him in person. And when they did, the Bible says they worshiped him. That is an immediate, simultaneous response that as soon as they saw him and recognized who he was, they fell on their face onto the ground before God. They recognized that they were standing in front of the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. And Jesus had, in fact, been raised from the dead. I can't imagine what that must have been like. I went to the Median Man March that we had 
uh, one time in, in Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago, and there were a million-plus men on our faces in Washington, D.C., praying for revival to sweep our land. And if we ever needed that, we need it today. We need it today. We do. We need it today. And they fell on their faces and they worshipped him. He is the omnipotent, the omniscient, the ever-present Jesus who had been raised from the dead. Authenticity not only is willing to do and to go where Jesus leads, but it's willing to worship him as Lord that he is. He is the Lord. And authentic discipleship worships the Lord. But notice, not only do they recognize the supremacy, but we need to resist what we call hesitancy. Because it's interesting that Matthew records this. He's being very honest and very open and very blunt. But, however, some doubted. Can you imagine this spectacular visualization of Jesus, the resurrected Savior, now standing at the top of the mountain, and he's there, and you see him, and yet you doubt. The word doubt is really hesitated. It's the same word that is used for Simon Peter when he sees Jesus walking on the water, and he says, if you'll tell me to come, I'll come. And Jesus will come on, and he steps out, and he's walking on water. And as he's walking on water, he begins to look around and seeing the waves, and the Bible says that he hesitated. And the moment he hesitated, he began to sink, and Jesus picks him up, and he says, Simon, why did you doubt? Why did you hesitate? Why did you hesitate? And there are some here who were hesitating. And you can understand that. I mean, wasn't it true that Thomas hesitated? Unless I feel the side and feel the hands, I will not believe. And yet, I think even sometimes believing, I mean seeing and then trying to find room for faith and belief, had to, is, is that really? I mean, there's 500 people here. We have maybe close to 400 in this auditorium here and a couple of hundred that are not here. But in here, you know, if we were all jammed together and some in the back, you, you know, is that, is that really him? I, I don't know, but we don't know why they hesitated, but they hesitated. We still have the hesitancy today from those who would, who would say, you know, Lord, is that really you speaking? Is that really you leading? Isn't it easy for us when we hear the call, the question, the validity of the call? And to say, well, it's not really him. It's not really him. And, and these disciples, I believe, in their authenticity, these, these, these core disciples who saw him, who were to give testimony of the fact that he had risen from the dead, they put their faith in him, and they did not hesitate. And they were willing to walk by faith and not by just sight. But as you wrap this all together, they answered the call of genuine discipleship. I mean, the passage in 1 Corinthians 1.11, let me just read it to you. It says here in the passage, in 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The Apostle Paul understood the value of first becoming a disciple of Jesus who was following the example of Christ himself before he could make disciples. You can't ask your children, parents, to follow Jesus if you aren't following Jesus. You can't hold them to a different standard. Grandparents, you can't ask your children, your grandchildren to follow Jesus if you yourself are not following Christ. We must become disciples first before we lead anyone else to discipleship. And so it's important that we understand what the Apostle Paul said, follow me because I am following the example of Jesus. It is safe to follow me because I, like you, am following Jesus. And in following in my footsteps, you will become like him. How many of us can say that today? Honestly and genuinely say, I am in the process. I'm not completely perfect, but I'm in the process of becoming a disciple. And if you follow in my footsteps, you'll be safe because I am following the example of Jesus. So follow me. Let me lead you in following Jesus. And so we must answer the call. Once we answer the call, the second thing is we must 
accept the assignment. You see, the first thing that he says is that we must become disciples. But he then challenges us now to build disciples, to invest our lives in building disciples, accepting the assignment. Notice what he says. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. My life purpose is to become a disciple, but also then to invest my life in help building others in discipleship. Two primary life purposes for the disciple. Become and to become involved in building others into discipleship. What he says is the Great Commission. So how do we accept the assignment? I mean, the assignment is huge. And so because of that, he, in giving them the assignment, he says, in this assignment, I understand the immensity and, and the, 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 the magnitude of the, of the call of, of investing yourself and building disciples. I know how hard and how difficult and how huge of a task that is. And because of that, You're going to have to be dependent upon me. And disciples who are accepting the assignment must rely upon Jesus. Notice in the reliance that is found in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know, in order to accept this assignment and to fulfill this assignment, you cannot do it in and of yourselves. You need someone greater than yourself. I'm going to tell you, the hardest thing to do is to invest your life in building people. Some of you invest your life in building machines like airplanes and other things and, and houses or whatever it might be. They, they're, they're a little bit easier to manage than people. They are. Try herding cats. That's what, it like, that's what it's like to be, to, to be a disciple investing in people. You can't get them inside of the pen. They don't stay there. They don't always act right and do right, and neither do those of us who are discipling those who are wanting to be discipled. And people are, are people, and, it, and it's, it's a challenge. And so Jesus said in this challenge, he says, notice, and the Bible says, and Jesus came. I, I like that. He came. He came near to them. When he first appeared to them, he was at a distance, and he draws near to them. He, he, he snuggles up with them. He gets as close to them as he possibly could with all 500-plus people. And they're, they're close. There's no, no distance. There's no proximity. And he came to them, and he spoke. At first, he appears. He doesn't say anything. Now he speaks. Why does he speak? Why does he speak? He speaks because earlier Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And he wanted his sheep, his disciples, to hear his voice. And through that voice, to recognize it's Jesus. While my mother yelled, Charlie! Nobody had to tell me that was my mom. No one else can sound like my mother. When I played basketball in high school, they would come watch me play. I would want to just kind of duck because I could hear my mom's voice through this crowd of people that was yelling at us, mostly instructions, and I didn't realize that was a preparation for being a pastor of a church, but all these people telling us how to play the game, I could hear my mother's voice. They recognized it was Jesus by his voice. What a calming factor about it. It brought comfort, calmness, faith, and belief. And I think maybe most of those who were hesitant at this point got on board. But, you know, they were Baptists, so not all of them got on board. But anyway, and he said to them, who's them? He says to the 500 plus. He's not just addressing the 11 plus the two Marys. He's saying to all the 500 plus people there. Because you see, this, this assignment is not just an assignment for the pastor or for the other pastors or for the life group teacher or the Sunday school teacher, whatever you prefer. It's not just for a selected few. It's for every disciple of Jesus. It's an assignment for everyone. And he says here to them, and Jesus came and said to them, all. I don't know about you, but A-L-L is, is pretty quantitative, isn't it? All means all. 
All authority, all power, every ounce of the power that God has, the magnificent, supreme, all-knowing, omniscient, omnipresent God who's reigning and sitting on the throne has given me all his power as his son. All of God's power is now available to me. All of the power in heaven and on earth. You know, there's a power on this earth, and it's not the power that comes from heaven. It's the power that comes from below. It's the powers of hell. And Jesus says, I have authority even over the powers of hell. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, has been given. It's been granted. It's been endowed to me, to Jesus. And soon in Acts, he's going to tell them they need to go to Acts They need to go to Jerusalem to receive the power, the the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of Jesus in the person of the Holy Spirit. And they will then have that power that Jesus has to have authority over things of the earth. And so there's a dependence here that we as disciples must not act independently and apart from him, but we must be dependent upon him. I know for some of you who want to be strong and you think you're independent and you think you can make it and you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you want to do that again? We don't want to do that again. Okay. You can't do it. You can't save anybody. You can't save anybody. Only Jesus can save through the convicting power of his Holy Spirit and the regenerational work of the Holy Spirit. But you can join him in disciple-making. And as his power works in you and through you and in the one you're discipling, he can transform lives. Not only bring newness of life, but help them grow in their understanding and their walk of what it means to be a disciple, a Christ follower, and to follow him. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. That's our dependence. But notice our reliance. Go! Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go and make disciples. I I just want to, we're going to come there probably later on, and we're going to look at this a little more intently, look at it a little bit tonight. But there are four things that I want to quickly mention here in regard to this. As we go and make disciples, we must not get off track. We must not lose our mission. We must not lose our focus. And, and Jesus understands that we can lose our focus. We can lose our focus as a church. And many churches have lost their focus. They become entertainment businesses. It's almost as if we're in the entertainment industry. I had a guy one time when I was pastoring a, uh, down in Buna, Texas. And we were outside. And he was a great guy. He's a deacon. And Love the guy, and we got to talking about it, and he said, well, we're really going to grow now. We had just gotten a new worship arts pastor. I'm going to put the pressure on you, Mark. We just got a new worship arts pastor back then, and I said, well, why do you think we're going to grow now? He said, because we're the best show in town. And I think sometimes that's, that's what we do in church. And you come to be entertained. Yes, you do. And if it's not in the entertainment that pleases me, by golly, I'm going to send you an email or I'm going to send you a letter or I'm going to let you know. We're not in the entertainment business. And we get lost sometimes in our purpose and our mission. All the glam and the lights and all of this, this is not what it's all about. It's not about buildings and budgets. It's not about finances. God said he would provide for our needs. And for nine years almost, I've been helping people. And, and Roseanne can tell you, she sat through the finance meetings. If you've been to the finance meetings, God will provide our need, and he has. And so far, the doors are still open, the lights are on, and we're still here. Why? Because God has allowed it. It's not about budgets. It's not about income. It's not about cushy seats. It's not about a certain space in a life group. It's not about, it's all about the life mission of becoming a disciple and investing my life in building disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples. And we must understand that in this little phrase here, there's an intentionality here. As you go, I am intentionally, as I am going on the journey of being a disciple, I am looking for God and his activity that is going on and seeing where God is at work. And when I see God at work and I hear him inviting me to be a part of that work, I join God. I am intentionally looking for God's work. And when I see God working and I hear him asking me to join him, I then invest in that individual 
individual life. I invest my life into that person. I build a relationship with him. Discipleship is about relationship. And it's about one-on-one relationship. We get so lost in the crowd here. And so much so that when people drop out and it's months before anybody recognizes and realizes they're gone. Why? Because we have forgotten it's about relationships. And we intentionally look and invest in relationships with lost people where God is at work. And as we then invest in them, we then instruct them the gospel. We share by our lives and with our lips the gospel of Jesus. And once that happens, then we then include them. There's an inclusion aspect here. He says, all nations. There's not an exclusivity here. We're not looking for lawyers and doctors and engineers. We're looking for any lost person that is willing to trust Jesus as their Savior. Regardless of their socioeconomic level or regardless of their color or their race or or their background or, or whether they can help us or not. It's all peoples of all nations together worshiping God in one body, in one fellowship. And so here we see there's this reliability in the life mission that he calls us to invest, invest to, to intentional, intentional investment, uh, intentionality, investment, instruction, and inclusion. And there's a responsibility here on, on our part as well. Notice verse 19. We need to be responsible when we're in investing in people and building relationships and we're instructing them in the gospel and leading them to faith in Jesus to place their faith and trust in God as we join God in the process. There's something that we must make sure that we not fail to do as we disciple people. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all things that I have commanded you. There are three things here. We need to help them understand they need to belong When a disciple claims to be a Christ follower and they don't belong to a church or they don't love the church, they don't understand that we are the bride of Christ and connecting to the church is not an option. That's what baptism is. It is following the example of Jesus and being not just spiritually reborn but following Christ's example. And the first step is baptism and baptism then connects you to the body of Christ. It it helps you become a part of the fellowship. And the reason that we are Baptist is because we believe in immersion after conversion, after salvation. We don't baptize infants here. We don't baptize babies. We don't baptize the dead. We baptize only those who have professed faith in Christ as their Savior and have committed to follow Him as their leader, as their Lord. And then upon that profession, through that new birth experience, they then step out in the first act of obedience and follow Christ, and they are baptized, and they become a part of the body. That's the one thing that unites us here, as that we are all birthed through the same baptism. We don't accept sprinkling here. Why? Because sprinkling is not immersion. That's why we are Baptists. That keeps us doctrinally sound. And so it's a part of connecting to the family, to the body of Christ. Baptism. But notice he says teaching them. There's a not only baptism, but a belonging, but there's belief. There's a certain belief that we need to teach them. We need to instruct them in doctrinal principles and sound doctrine. That's why we hold on Sunday nights a class on doctrine. And while there are doctrines that we can agree with and disagree with and banter back and forth, the primary doctrines that we must agree on are the doctrines of the gospel and how one is to be saved and how important those gospel doctrines are. That's why we've come together as Southern Baptists and we have one document called the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And it's one document that's, it's not that we're a creedal people, but it's what we have agreed on as Southern Baptists. And there's freedom in that. BFM 2000, Baptist Faith and Message 2000, and yet it is that. And there's a lot of conflict and controversy today even over the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 among Southern Baptist churches. And some in our city do not adhere to that, which is the reason why we as a church have distanced ourselves from those who don't agree with and practice the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. We don't. We don't want to pool our money to develop and create other churches and other disciples who don't agree with the same doctrines. Doctrine is important today, and and I can't imagine someone leaving. How would you, what would you think of me if I left today and went to another church that was 
I picked on the Episcopalians last week. If I'd suddenly woke up and said, I want to pastor an Episcopalian church, what would you think of my doctrinal positions? You say, Boswell has flipped his wig. Well, I like to wear one of those black things, those robes, and I want to be called Father, and I want to sit in a confessional and hear people confess their sin, and I want to light candles to do penance or whatever. You see, doctrine is important. Mennonite Brethren is not mostly Baptist. It's not. It's not mostly. And the reason I'm Baptist is because instructionally I believe that we are closest to the Baptist teachings, to the doctrinal teachings of Jesus and, and what Jesus says. I've done my own research, and I am Baptist because I believe that we as a Baptist church follow the doctrine more closely. And this unanimity and this unity of all, you know, it really bothers me when they're doing these, uh, and I'm just going to say it, they, they do these uh, polls, and, and they call us who are Christians evangelicals. What is that? What is evangelicals? I, I don't know. I could tell you what I think an evangelical is. A born-again, Bible-believing, conservative Christian who believes that God's word is God's word, and, and it was the same yesterday, today, and it will be tomorrow. But that's not how they define an evangelical. If you attend church, you're an evangelical. And not everybody that attends a church today is an evangelical, according to, to what it... And I think we need to understand the importance of doctrinal teaching. But keep in mind, not just doctrinal teaching, but he says to observe all that I have commanded you. It's one thing to be doctrinally sound, but you've got to practice what you believe. And too many of us are doctrinally sound, but we're not practitioners. Jesus didn't write a single word of the New Testament. Not a single word of this Bible. He spoke a lot, and the Holy Spirit inspired others to write it. He invested his life in relationships with people, and he taught them doctrine, but he led them to practice the doctrine. And unless you're practicing that which you believe, you are not a disciple. We have that responsibility to instruct, to teach, and to practice ourselves and to help others practice their faith. But notice, number last, we need to be reassured. There's a beautiful assurance here where it says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And, is an all-inclusive, and having said all that I have said, behold, pay attention now, disciples. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, lock in. I had, a, had an evangelist one time. I, he, he's still down in Oklahoma. And a great guy, led a lot of people to Jesus. And he would go, lock in. And he said that so many times in his sermon and so we, Aaron and I went with him down to Brazil one time, and, and we kind of joked with him on the bus. said, lock in, lock in, you know, and he didn't like that very much. Uh, but uh, Jesus is saying, lock in, pay attention, remember this. In the course of fulfilling your life mission, I want you to remember this. I am the great I am. I'm the omnipotent, the omniscient, the all-present God, I am the I am of the Old Testament, and I am God, incarnate in the flesh, resurrected from the dead. I am with you, my disciples, how long? Always. I am with you always. But I can't see him sometimes, and I can't feel him sometimes. Get over it. It's not about seeing him. It's not about feeling him. It's about knowing that he said he would be with us always. You are never on your own. You are never not with him. He is with you everywhere, 24-7, seven days a week. He is with you. I am with you always. Until when? Until the end of the age. Until I return. I'll be with you until I return. Because one of these days, the trumpet of God's going to blow, and the dead in Christ will rise, and those of us who remain will be caught up together within the clouds, and we will be forever with the Lord. And until that day comes, on resurrection morning, I will be with you until I return. I'll be with you forever. As long as you fulfill your life mission of becoming a disciple and building disciples, I am with you. Always. 
until the end. That, that also helps me realize, when, is, when, when do I get to the end of my life mission? When I turn 80? No, until I breathe my last breath. Because when I breathe my last breath, then I will be with him. Or until he returns, I'm on my life mission. And my life mission is to become a disciple and to build disciples. That's, that's the two primary focuses of every disciple. Interesting enough, I just want to read this one passage. I'm going to close. Matthew 4, verse 18. Jesus is looking for disciples. Again, he's back in the Sea of Galilee, which is really the reason why he told him Galilee. It was, it was where he spent most of his ministry and preached m- many of his messages and did the most of his miracles was in Galilee. He didn't do them down in Jerusalem where all the religious elite were. He went to Galilee where they weren't. That's where he went. And while walking on the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Do you think that's coincidence? think that's an accident? Or do you think that's intentionality on Jesus? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I haven't been fishing in a long time, and I've got a couple of guys here who fish more often than I do. I haven't caught a fish in, in years. You know why? I hadn't been fishing. It's hard to catch a fish when you're not fishing. I mean, I can sit in my office all day long and Think about it and dream about it and want to do it and plan to do it and have a passion for it. But until I get up there and do it, I'm not catching a thing. I think today we have a lot of disciples just like that. He's called us to be fishers of men and we think about it, we want to do it, we dream about it, we we, we have passion about it and, and we pray about it, but we never do it. And yet he gave us as our primary mission not only to become disciples, but to invest our lives in building disciples. So the question is, you're not a discipler until you're investing in other disciples. How about that standard? It's not about what you give in the plate. It's not about how many ministries you serve. It's about relating to other lost people, leading them to faith in Christ, and helping disciple them as they become believers. That's all of our mission, not just mine. So how many have you been discipling? Are you a disciple or are you not? Yeah, discipleship is not criti- is not, it doesn't mean you're the critic. It doesn't mean you're a bystander. There are a lot of people today watching WSU playing their game this weekend, right? They're bystanders. Did they lose? Did they lose? They watched. We got a lot of watchers. We got a lot of lookers. We got a lot of wannabes. But until you answer the call and you accept your assignment and you say, Lord, I don't know how, but with your help, I'm going to begin to look to build relationships intentionally with lost people. And when I see you at work in someone's life, I'm going to invest in that person's life and I'm going to befriend them and I'm going to relate to them because I want you to use me to be a discipler. And when I lead them to faith in Christ, I will walk side by side with them until they are Christ followers. That's the reason why this church has 6,000 members and maybe 800 of us in church on Sunday morning. We've, we've developed converts We have not developed disciples. And there are too many churches that are investing in in, in entertainment and sideline people and watchers rather than doers. And discipleship is not just inviting someone to church while that's important. Discipleship is building a relationship and investing in someone. So with that definition that Jesus gives us, How can you, if you need to, become a disciple and invest in building disciples? Two questions as we close. Have I answered Christ's call to become a disciple? That's where it starts. You can't lead others to be what you're not. You just can't. 
There's a lot of people in the New Testament that had intellectual knowledge about God, but they didn't follow Jesus. They didn't have a personal relationship with him. There were people in the New Testament that had a, had a mental understanding, but never a heart transformation. You can know a lot about this book, and you can attend a lot of services and do a lot of ministry, but until you become a disciple, like the Apostle Paul said, you can't lead others to discipleship. You can't train others in being what you're not. So, are you becoming a disciple? Have you become a disciple? And then lastly, once you answer the call to become a disciple, have I accepted Christ's call to fulfill my assignment in investing in relationships with people in order for the primary purpose of helping them find Jesus and growing in Him? The new standard, isn't it? It's challenging. It's scary. It's hard. It's not easy. But it, it needs to be done. Because that's what Jesus commanded. And if we're his disciples, we follow his lead. Let's pray.